Father, that story is the greatest story ever told. It's a wonderful and marvelous story, speaking of the grace and the love, both matchless, of Jesus Christ towards us. Love such that it was not simply words and not simply teaching and not simply journeying with us as important and significant as those were. It was that he gave his life. He gave his life for us that we might have an eternal relationship with him. We're so thankful. We're so grateful. and We love you, Lord. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So Madeline Michelle Carthen was born in Missouri on the 6th of December in 1970. At 37, during the summer of 2007, Madeline was declared dead at the same time she had been accepted into an international internship program while attending Webster College. She learned of her death while she was still very much alive. The financial aid office told her that her social security number was associated with a deceased person and until she could come up with one that wasn't, she would have to withdraw immediately. Her car was repossessed. She lost her home. She lost her right to vote. She could not find employment. And her name regularly popped up on the Homeland Security list. She had to change her name. NBC News reported that Madeline contacted the Social Security Administration who informed her that her name and Social Security number had been added to the death master file in error. Did you know there was a, there's a master file? There's a death master file. Didn't even know. She did everything that she could. She even filed in 2019 a federal lawsuit to have her name removed from that file. But as of last week, literally this past week, according to the government, she on paper remains dead. Now there's a, even a scarier piece to this. The Social Security Administration reported that this happens to between seven and 15,000 people every year. You don't want on that list. I mean, there's no identity theft like governmental identity theft, even if it's in error. Now, as it turns out, who knew, sometimes it isn't easy to prove that you're alive. While that may be a bit extreme for our experience, maybe there's something a a bit closer because not only is it sometimes difficult to prove that you're alive, more often it's challenging for you to prove who you are. Proving that you are who you say you are. So in 2011, I learned something that I'd never known before. If you're in the federal workplace, you're familiar with this term by now, but it was pretty new then. It's called a continuing resolution. Now, this continuing resolution 
was not going to be signed until we had managed somehow a 10% cut in our military uh, budget. So at the time, I was the wing chaplain in Aviano, Italy. What a beautiful place to live. Uh, But for me, not so much to work. (laughs) Especially when it meant that I had to let people go. So alongside of our staff of uh, 11, the chapel employed some 13 contractors, all of whom had either appropriated or non-appropriated government uh, contracts. That means something to some of you and to others it doesn't. It's different pots of money. So I had to tell all the appropriated contractors, some of whom had been there for years, that their contracts would lapse. Now, most of them who were in that context uh, were living in Italy based on those contracts. It was not my desire. Uh, The government simply was not going to provide the money. That's all there was to it. And as a result of not extending the contracts, they didn't say to me, Oh, Chaplain Tillery, we understand that you're constrained by the government to do such things as allow our contracts to lapse. No, what I learned from that difficult time was that when you're dealing with people, your intentions, your desires, and your emotions about the issue actually means very little. The reason that we think that people know us is there's even a word for it. It's called the transparency illusion. That is, that we believe that other people see our hearts. They do not. They see our needs, our wants, our desires. They see the emotions that we feel. They don't. They see your actions. Several uh, of these contractors had to leave uh, the country. And I'm pretty sure that if I were to track some of them down today, uh, they would have few fond feelings for me. In fact, I was called... Uh, heartless. I don't imagine this. I was actually called heartless. But the more I tried to proclaim that I was not heartless, the more heartless I seemed that I was. It's kind of an interesting thing. Then not only was I, okay, okay, if you're not heartless, then you're a coward. Stand up! Make it happen! So I was either heartless or a coward because I blamed the administration. What am I supposed to do? I'm actually following orders. You don't have to follow orders. Yes, I do. So, some came around. Some didn't. Some were actually able to renegotiate their contracts and they were able to remain. But it was, seriously, uh, watch out for Chaplain Tillery. He will fire you. Listen to me. Have you ever tried to prove who you are or what you're like to someone who didn't believe you. It's an astonishing work. And in fact, it's not even possible. When someone chooses not to see, or to see only through a a, a paper towel, cardboard tube, their blindness is more complete than someone who's actually born blind and cannot see with their eyes. It is an amazing thing. Now, would I say 
to not try? No, I'm not saying that. I would say do due diligence. But the truth is, if someone has a, a slant on you, you're not going to change it. I don't care how wonderful your heart and your mind is. If you're not already there, turn with me to the book of John. Just a, a few verses today, John 9, 9 through 12. And we're going to continue to gain some insights from this story about the man who was born blind. Now, Ken took us through the event itself last Sunday, and he looked into some of the, the theological issues and some of the, the ripples that impact our life. And uh, uh, there are ripples. In fact, the first one that fascinates me in this, and this is a kind of a broad overview as we approach the text, is that the seeing ones are the ones who become blind as the blind one becomes sighted. So let's read. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, uh, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So today we're going to explore a very powerful passage that teaches us not only about the miraculous healing power of Jesus, but how there is a blindness that can affect our hearts as well. So let me point out again, just approaching comments to the passage itself. Uh, first, there are very few people statistically who are born uh, blind. But we are all born blind spiritually. None of us are sighted. That has to come to us through Jesus Christ. Until then, we are in darkness. We're unable to see his truth and his grace. Second, Jesus is the only one who can open our eyes. We think our eyes can be opened by intense study. It cannot because the ancients pointed out a, a thing that was known. About the Apostle Paul, you'll recall, his great learning has made him mad. I'll tell you what, yeah, if you spend your life and just cram information in there that has no basis, no foundation, and you look around in the world and you say nothing, as the song says, dust in the wind, of course it would make you mad. It's not founded on anything. But as the story unfolds, we see that this healing really stirred up the people and it exposed a blindness, a spiritual blindness, but also a blindness of prejudice and a blindness of preconceived notions. The neighbors were debating, is this the guy, is this not the guy? You know, mistaken identity. Uh, and the whole time he's insisting, right? No, I'm the guy, I'm the guy. The passage is very humbling to me because 
you know, at that time in that uh, community, it was actually quite stable and had been for some time, uh, for, for decades. So like most communities, people have their, uh, have their rhythms. Like if you have a particular rhythm that you're in the same road, the same time, very often you will find that you'll see the same cars. You'll see the same people. If someone rides the bike to the work every day, you'll pass that person. There are rhythms there are ways that people dress. There are things that people uh, do. And this is, this, is, this is the case here as well. This man had a regular rhythm. I don't know who took him into his place where he begged, but somebody uh, did. He probably lived in a, a little hovel with uh, several other people who were also similar to his uh, condition, although some cited. People would pass him every day. And some would give, and some would give out of compassion. Others, perhaps out of a sense of duty. Others, perhaps out of a sense of, of, of guilt. But he went to the same place. Uh, his, his, his world was very uh, small. And one day he was blind. The next day he could see. And uh, the, the, when he could see, he probably was out without his, uh, you know, his stick he was probably without his uh, basket to collect uh, money. He was probably, like me, when I first got my first pair of glasses, marveled that there were leaves on trees. It's a thing. And so he was probably marveling at God's uh, creation. They failed to recognize him. I want to say two things about that. First, it has to do with respect. I've mentioned this before. It's one of my favorite words uh, ever but it's comprised of two parts, right? Re, to do more at, to do again, and spect. Like spectators are, we're gonna, some of us are going to watch uh, spectacles. Like when my Cowboys lost to the 49ers. You couldn't even call that a loss. And I realize I'm with a Texans crowd, but you know, you gotta, you got to give some space for the transplants. So... Spectator, spectacle, spectral, meaning to see, right? So respect, what respect means, if you didn't know this, plant this in your brain, because this is very important. Respect means to look again. In other words, when somebody says something to you, when somebody is somehow in your sphere of influence or you're in theirs or in that space, you don't just go, <laughs> yeah, right, or worse, you don't even hear it. It's, you don't look again. So if you understand respect in this way as looking again, actually examining and thinking about what the person is saying, then you understand that disrespect is literally to render someone invisible. It's to not look. It's to not see. And here you have uh, this uh, piece. It's combined... Uh, with another uh, piece that is where this man is just simply part of the landscape. He's always there, but you couldn't pick him out in a crowd because he had always been looked over. So on the other hand, the confused response makes sense. Uh, and they've actually done some pretty decent uh, research on this because we recognize people not just by their faces, not just by their voices, although we, we certainly can, it's also by their footstep. It's also by uh, 
their, the patterns, the clothing that they wear. We get to uh, accustomed to recognizing someone by their walk. So at a distance, you can tell who someone is, if you know them, by the way they're walking, even if they're walking away from you. And so we, we do this, and it's based on the, these, these uh, patterns and expectations that we have. The researchers at the University of Wisconsin... Uh, they did a lot of research on this. They did some brain scans on, on about uh, sending mixed messages when you were like uh, tasting something, you were, you were drinking something. And they concluded this, this is their conclusion, neural responses to taste in the primary taste cortex are modulated by expectations and not solely by the objective quality of taste. In other words, the things that we taste have something to do with what our brain is telling us is going to taste good and not taste good. Let me give you an example because this has happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. Where I go to a restaurant and I order a Diet Coke and there in front of me is an iced tea. Now, I don't know that it's iced tea. Far as I'm concerned, it's a Diet Coke. I pick up my glass, I drink, and it's like, what is, what in the world is this? Now, ordinarily, I love iced tea. Drink gallons of it. But when I'm expecting a Diet Coke and I get an iced tea, it tastes bad. Why? Because it's not what I'm expecting. So these people were really getting a full dose of what's not expected. Here you got someone that for probably some of them their adult lives, or even as uh, children, as they walk by, they see this guy there. Now he's not there. Here's a guy who looks like him, but he's standing up. But doesn't have that stick in his hand. He's not wobbling. He's not asking for help to walk somewhere to get up some steps or something. And they don't recognize him. They, it says right there in the text, he's a lookalike. In other words, they rejected the man's claims and the witnesses of others to include himself to believe that this was some kind of scam. So it's a typical human response. We, we do this. What we believe is conditioned based on what we expect and then on what we see. And when something challenges those uh, preconceived notions, we're, we're like confused. So, so it's okay. I mean, you know, we can understand that. But this is also a perfect example of how Scripture talks about, you recall the story, uh, Lord, uh, send them an angel or uh, resurrect someone from the dead. Let them go back and talk to them. Then they would believe. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Because belief is preconditioned on what it is that you want to believe. Second, though, they were blinded not only by disrespect, but also this other notion, non-belief. They could not accept that he had been miraculously healed. Uh, that would be something, okay? So if you heard of a genuine, spontaneous healing over at United Methodist, where the doctors just went, boom, new liver right there when there wasn't one. Most of you would do what? 
I'm not going to see, I guarantee you, I'm not going to see a bunch of, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. You're going to say, what kind of deal is this? Who is that doctor's name? What's up with that? It's a, why? Because it doesn't happen. It's not part of our regular experience. And so that kind of prejudice, that kind of judgment clouds our ability. It certainly clouded uh, theirs. And in the middle of this, this is, I find this, I just a, 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 a beautiful, it's like Horton hears a, a who, right? In the middle of all this clamor, you got this guy going, no, no, I'm the guy. If you look at the words of your text, it says he kept on saying. And in other words, he didn't just say, oh, yeah, no, that, that's me. No, he's, he's trying to get an audience. He's trying to say, hey, I'm here. It's me. I'm the guy. He had to shout out, right? to define his own existence as if those who were around him had any way to determine who he was. Yes, that's him. No, that's not him. It's nonsense. The reality was who the man was, not what they said about him. He wasn't a person to them. And this is kind of where I'm going, so, I mean, in the sense of, I don't know, some of us, I, I know sometimes I need to change this. Barb is, uh, I think she's more gracious than, uh, than I am, but he wasn't a person. He was like, he was a category to be avoided. It's like, uh, yeah, just, uh, I choose to ignore this. I walk right by it. Uh, he was a, a label, a classification. No one spent enough time with him. Get this, think about this. His neighbors, those who were around him all day long, none of them said, I have sat with this man. I have talked with him. I know what his dreams and aspirations are. I know what his needs are. None of that happened. They're all like, what? Who is this guy? No one got to know him. He was a label based on his physical blindness and the necessity to beg. They did not know him. They did not befriend him. It's just a, it's just a question, but it's one I think that I need to ask myself, and that is, do I make unfair assumptions? And I actually have a couple of images that come uh, to my mind about where those unfair assumptions were proven false to me. And so I have to go, oh, you know what? Maybe my mind is not the arbiter of that which is true and that which is not true. And when I make an unfair assumption or judgment, do I subtly push another person away? Do I cut the conversation short or do I not have the conversation at all? As Jesus' disciples, the Spirit of God must strengthen us to understand that His love is for everyone. Now, salvation is limited for those who 
trust in Christ. I get that. But the love of God, the love of Christ is for every single person out there. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, oh, we have to stop and meet each need or something like that. That's a bottomless, it's bottomless. Jesus himself even said, the poor you have with you always. That's not what I'm saying. What I am talking about, though, is an attitude toward others, especially others who are not like uh, us or whatever our context is. Love needs to be shown to people, any person that we come across as understanding them as created in the Imago Dei. That person is in the image of God. Now verse 10 tells us a central question. There's a central question that emerges. Okay, so given that this blind uh, beggar could now uh, see, they're going, well, how? How were your eyes opened? And the man just recites the story. And, you know, he was not promised anything, right? He was actually told to go do something. I don't know what the guy was thinking along the line. I, if I was a blind man, blind from birth, somebody put mud in my eyes and said, go wash it off, I'm not expecting to see. I'm expecting, ah, you know, maybe put some gold in there or something in the nuggets, you know, so maybe I can find them and feel them and ask and something. I, I'm not thinking that I'm going to be able to see. But Jesus' choice of this man as the sixth sign is no accident. His, these signs are based on situations that cannot be seen in any other way than miraculous. Done publicly, not simply chronic, but permanent conditions. The man who was crippled for 40 years, for example, uh, and those kinds of things. And so, if you were the one who was blind, and now you uh, see, how did that happen? So he says that, but we're going to find in the following text... They ask him that question four times. Why? Because they don't believe. They're missing the miracle because they are blind to it. The healed man didn't, <laughs> did not know. The, do you, think about this. At this point in time, that man had never seen Jesus. And yet he had seen Jesus more clearly than all of those sighted people who were around. He had only heard his voice. He gives a complete account. And when someone asks us about our faith in Jesus Christ, I think it should be the same. It should just be sincere. It should be simple. And it should be honest. Because what attracted those people to his message was not his charisma. It was not the abilities that he had to uh, talk or to... Uh, speak poetry or something. It was something very simple. Jesus changed my life. We hear it stated differently as we'll go through this text uh, for several weeks. All I know is this. Once I was blind, now I see. So there are a few things that I would like recommend to you. First, recognize our own blindness. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. 
Stanford University some time ago conducted a test to see if an incompetent person was able to recognize that they were incompetent. The answer was no. In fact, an incompetent person felt more competent than a competent person did. The reason they couldn't recognize it was because they didn't have the competence to be able to see, okay? So blindness is not an easy thing. Okay, I can say, okay, recognize your blind areas. What? (laughs) How can I know? I don't, if I can't see it, I, I can't see it. That's why we have trusted advisors and trusted friends. Because someone who's really your friend will, will tell you if you're headed toward the edge of a, a, a cliff. Godly friends, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, all combined together can do the Second, the true source, right? Okay, Jesus is the one who gave sight to the blind man. He, he gives it to us. Third, one of our blind spots, I think, is uh, some of this kind of prejudice and judgment, not necessarily as we define it in America today. It's so bashed and, and, and beaten and bloodied that it doesn't hardly make sense anymore. But we have, when I say prejudice, I mean we're prejudging something. And the reason we're able to do that, seriously, when we get down into our hearts, is because we think, you know, oh, I know better. I know the right I know the right way. I I know I know the way that this should go. And uh that's just not true. I I need to break in here for just a second as I'm I am moving towards the finally. <laughs> there is some of that that I think is uh harsh. So I mean, my heart is, what's the right word? There is not a right word. I am more saddened. Now, see, I can't even say it that way. The whole thing is so disgusting. I am I'm shocked that people could celebrate what happened last Saturday. How is that humanly, how can a human being celebrate that? One may come up with their reasons for why it happened, but to celebrate it? I can't understand that. That's the kind of blindness that allows to not see women and children and grandparents and babies. That's the quintessential example of spiritual blindness. It's happened before, it'll happen again. I understand Plato and von Clausewitz and everyone else have said only the dead know the end of war. But there is something more, and that is by embracing the transformative power of Christ's love and grace in our lives, Witnessing that profound miracle and understanding that that is the miracle that we can have in our own lives to open our eyes to the truth where we have compassion and cast aside darkness. And this is something that every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ has done. They've moved from uh, darkness uh, to light.
And if you've done that, your story, whether you think of it in this way or not, your story is every bit as magnificent as this one who was healed from his blindness. So finally, God doesn't expect us to have a deep, uh, sophisticated knowledge to be saved. It doesn't. does not. That's something that men put on this thing. You know what you've experienced, whether you were five years old or whether you were 50 years old. It's something that God does inside of you. We don't have the answers, certainly not all of them. We have a few. We have a couple. But what we need to know and understand more completely is Isaiah 42, that Jesus came to do certain things. One of those things was to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, and to release those who sit in darkness. Madeline has had a terrible time getting her life back after the Social Security Administration put her on the master death list. She's making as much noise as she possibly can to regain her life. But we were born, in essence, with our names on a master death list. And Christ came to take our names off that list and put us into another list, the book of life. Trust in Christ and your name will be moved. And any noise we make should be the sound, not of complaint, but of telling our story of how he saved us to others. Father, we are grateful and we are thankful that you are the one who gives us any ability to see anything at any time. Um, And you delight in giving us insights. And I thank you for your word, which is full of them. Uh, Grant us a continued day, continued worship during the day, and and safety uh, as we uh, leave uh, this place. Through Christ our Lord, amen.